Good evening, folks. Uh, we have two readings tonight. So our first reading is from Exodus chapter 19, and we're going to read from verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out, out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, our second reading is from 2 Timothy, chapter 3, starting in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise For salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering Do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Well, thank you to Adam and to Izzy and to Craig and to our musicians for leading us. Now, we'll come to to Timothy later on in the service. To Timothy is the final letter of the Apostle Paul, and it's full of emotion as the Apostle writes to the next generation, the first generation of Christian ministers after the age of the apostles. 
in a relay race. And Britain have done pretty well recently in relay races. The key thing is the transition point between one athlete and the other. And the key thing at the transition point is not to drop the baton. One of the great privileges we have as a church is to look and invest in the next and the next again generation. And it's encouraging, and I want to encourage you in this, that across Scotland and indeed more widely across the UK, there are a lot of people emerging either to train for gospel ministry or to be zealous, committed Christians in the workplace alongside them. Both are equally important. Both are necessary. This past week, I was at a conference, one of the Bonatrust conferences. Uh, There are new ones added every year. We go away with a dozen or so people. We spend 36 hours together. Uh, We eat well. They sleep well, especially those with small children. And we study one Bible book, one thing, one thing. And we talk together about ministry. What strikes me about these people and what strikes me increasingly about their generation? What strikes me about those you saw on your feet tonight and those you saw on the keyboard and guitar and drums is a marked humility amongst them. I'm not saying that to big them up. I'm just telling it as it is. There is a marked humility and a kindness and a love for Jesus and a love for one another. At the conference this week, one of the young ministers there in the first two to three years of their ministry was laid aside, out of work, out of being able to work at the moment. And it was remarkable to watch all of his peers from all sorts of different constituencies and backgrounds rally around him, get at his back, look after him, and encourage him to take him home at night so he could sleep in his own bed and bring him back the next morning. That's a little microcosm of what is happening across this country. And that is hugely encouraging. But let me ask you to pray this for that generation. Humility is much better than pride. But humility can easily become insecurity and a lack of confidence. And that's a good fertile ground to be as a Christian minister or as a Christian in the workplace. And both are equally important. It's a good place to be. It's where Timothy was. Timothy was not especially timid. He was just normal. Humility, God uses. But humility, the devil exploits. So pray for their encouragement. Pray that they will not see the task ahead as too daunting. Pray that they will not see that they are not fit for it. For who of us is? Who of us is in the Christian life? But be encouraged. God is raising up dozens of people with humble hearts in this country at this time.
So let me pray for them and for our time. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all those of the generations of young people in this country who are responding to the need, supernaturally responding to the need, some pursuing vocational ministry, many pursuing committed lives in the workplace, and both are necessary and both are important. Thank you, Lord, for the marked humility that characterizes their generation. Thank you for the hunger amongst the next-again generation, people coming to the end of school and younger. We pray, Lord, that you would raise up amongst these groups many more young men and women, zealous for Jesus, committed to serve. And Lord, in their humility, we pray that you would protect them from a crippling sense of inadequacy and a crippling sense of sinfulness. But what an encouragement it is that the generation of future leaders in vocational ministry and in the workplace, what an encouragement it is that as a generation they are deeply convicted of sin and rendered thus useful to the Master, the Lord Jesus. Protect them, Lord. Protect them and unite them and use them. And may this be part of a turning in this country to Jesus again. And we pray all this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Now, that was a little digression. If you turn in the service sheet to the two pages in the middle, font size zero. My apologies for that. It looked bigger on my computer. And um, I want to begin by a slight apology for last week. You'll see on the sheet that the introductory point, exciting stuff, is the same as the introductory point last week. And uh, the reason for that is I think all I really managed to do last week was tell you that the local church that we are in here and we are part of is an exciting place to be. I think I said that a number of times enthusiastically, such that you really believed that I believed that, but I perhaps didn't explain it as clearly as I would have liked. And the benefit of hindsight and numerous uh, emails, questions, discussions, and the sharp minds of our new ministry associates and leaders in training have sharpened it up. So I'm going to just run over some of that ground again, not with any shame about that. I think we learn from each other. This is not an easy subject to grasp and to understand. And I hope at the end of this, you will be excited, not just because I'm excited, but excited because you also have understood what the Bible says. Now, two points, and then a third by way of application. Firstly, gathering together as a church on Sundays. One of the things that's very helpful to note right at the start is the New Testament word, ecclesia, translated in English as church, simply means assembled people or gathered people. And immediately that transforms our understanding of what we mean when we use the word church. And we have all sorts of stuff in our mind when we use that word, 
Whatever it is, it means, biblically, ecclesia, assembled people or a gathering of people. Now, what is the church? I've given you a definition there, which I hope is helpful. Rooted in God's promises to Israel. In other words, the church has continuity, difference but continuity with the Old Covenant or Old Testament people of God. Rooted in God's promises to Israel, the church inaugurated at Pentecost by the giving of the Holy Spirit, the birthday of the church, is the new covenant people of God in Jesus Christ. Now, let me just pause there and unpack that. You were getting very excited. We've done point one, sub point one in 30 seconds. And we'll pause on some of them. So the church has its origin in the eternal purposes of God, right back to God's promise to Abraham that he would, through Abraham's line, gather to himself a people from every nation on the earth. It's extraordinary that God promised that then to that man. And the church is rooted in these promises and in the promises as they were worked out in the old covenant people of God, uh, Israel. Now, the church brought to life by the Spirit, the church of Jesus Christ, is the new covenant people of God. And as such, the church is the fulfillment of God's promise to the prophets in the Old Testament that he would make a new and better covenant with his people. How is it a new and better covenant? What is it that we have as Christians? Listen to some of the ways the church is described in the New Testament. The church is the redeemed, which means purchased, owned, bought. Redeemed people of God bought by the blood of Jesus. The church is the adopted family of God, once slaves to sin but now brought into a loving relationship with God as Father and you and I, each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. The church is the body of Christ, having him as his head, dependent on him, gifted by the Holy Spirit, crafted, just look around you, crafted as a unity in diversity, reliant on one another, dependent on one another, at times in our lives, so dependent on one another, loved by Christ, saved by his sacrificial death, indwelt by his Holy Spirit, being transformed into his likeness, one and the other, the church, the temple of the Holy Spirit, filled with the fullness and fragrance of Christ, the new humanity, People reconciled in this room who in any other place and walk of life would not be together. The church, the branches that abide in the vine that is Christ, in union with him. The church's mission is the great commission of the Lord Jesus to go into the world with the authority of the risen Christ 
and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. You notice that word in the commission, baptizing them? That can only happen in a church. The Great Commission is to go and multiply churches, it's to put churches all over the earth, all for the glory of God. Now, there's a whole series we could look at in terms of what the church is. It's a marvelous thing. Now, moving on to number three, the New Testament uses the word church. This is where I've hopefully got more clarity. I was encouraged by one of my colleagues who said as soon as he looked at that little diagram, it all made sense. Implied last week, it didn't make any sense. The New Testament uses the word church in two principal ways, the church universal and the church local. So the church universal, of which you and I are members if we are Christians, the church universal speaks of the unity of all believers everywhere, both living and dead. And the church universal is not, therefore, identical with any one local church, denomination, or association. It is not entirely visible to us. It refers to the total of all believers from all places and all times. That is the church universal. And the church universal, and we'll expand on this a little bit more in a moment, needs to be seen in two ways. The church universal now is in heaven. And we'll see in a moment that as Christians, you and I have a place in heaven, a status in heaven, a foot in heaven, a Savior in heaven, who lives in us by the Spirit. And in heaven in the heavenly assembly, we all have our place. The other dimension of the universal church is the new creation, which is not yet, which will be when Christ returns, meets his bridegroom, and they are united in one flesh in the new creation, where all believing people will live together. And that promise to Abraham that there will be people from every nation of the earth with Christ will be finally fulfilled. That is the universal church, and there is one universal church made up of all believing people in Christ. All believing people in the old covenant and the new covenant, through all of human history, from all the countries of the world, those who are with Christ in glory, their souls because they have died, those of us who are on the earth, we are all part of that heavenly assembly that is the universal church now. And the not yet is that universal church, the heavenly assembly, will become the new creation when Jesus Christ returns and this earth is resurrected and we will live with him in a new creation. Church refers to the universal church but church also refers to the local church on the earth, warts and all, with all of our fallenness, with all of our struggles, a gathered community of God's people 
who are covenanted together to worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to love one another and to witness to the world. Local churches. And in this local church, of which Chalmers is one, and there are local churches scattered all over the earth, the local church is God's showcase or display cabinet for His eternal plan to reconcile all believing people in a new creation in Christ. Inside a local church, with all its failings, is a prototype, is the first fruits, is a sense and experience of what eternity will be like with Jesus. Only in part, with all our flaws. But let's not always do ourselves down. Let's celebrate what it means to be part of a living local church. Now, number four. To become a Christian is to become a member of the universal church. So when you became a Christian, you became a member of the universal church. And the Bible speaks in this way, that God raises us up with Christ and seats us in the heavenly places. Let me just quote to you from a couple of verses, Ephesians 1 and 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's where we are. Or Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. For you have died, died to sin, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, why say that the universal church is in heaven? Because by our union with Christ, we are seated in the heavens, meaning we possess standing and a place in God's heavenly throne room. And all the prerogatives and all the protections of that place and identity belong to us because we are sons and daughters with the King of the living God. We are there. Our place is in heaven. We are part of the universal church. Now, the author of Hebrews, as we'll see in a few weeks, highlights the heavenly location even more explicitly for his Christian audience. He says this, You have come, and this is you if you are a Christian, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly, that word is ecclesia, the church, of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, that blows my mind. And he cannot explain it simply. But the point is, when you are, become a Christian, you become part of the universal Christ, and you have a stake and a status in heaven with Jesus and with all believing people through all of history and all the things that define us on the ground in the world, like affiliations and denominations and structures. None of that matters. 
We are part of the church universal, one church. I mean, you need to be properly converted to Christ to be part of it. You only are part of it through the blood of Jesus. But through the blood of Jesus, you are part of the universal church, the one universal church that one day with Christ's return will come from heaven to earth and become the new creation where Christ will live with his people. And yet, in the here and now, membership of the heavenly assembly must show up on earth in local churches scattered all over the earth, outposts of eternity, as first fruits of the new creation, as signposts of what eternity will be like. Christian believers gathered together, committed to Christ and to one another. And the local church of which we are one is where we see and hear and literally rub shoulders with the universal church. The local church is a visible earthly outpost of the heavenly assembly. Really? Yes. It really is. A local church is a foretaste And if you belong to the universal church, you will want to join a local church. Now, number five, fundamental to being part of a local church is gathering or meeting together regularly. Let me give you a simple analogy. You can be part of a basketball team or a soccer team or whatever, but you're not really part of the team if you don't turn up to play. You've got to turn up to play. And fundamental to being part of a local church. I mean, if a local church is a gathering of God's people, and if that local church is in space and time a kind of illustration of the universal church that one day will become the new creation, if this local church is a prototype of the gathered people of God in this resurrected earth, the new creation, we must meet together to be who we are and to display who we are. We meet together all through the week, but on Sundays we gather in a special way. We gather as a whole church. Now we do that over three services. In some ways it would be great to have a big building that we could do that in one service. The problem with that though is that people who aren't Christians, would find it very hard to come in. It's good there's room. Churches gather on Sundays because it is essential to a church to be a church to gather. A church becomes a church in the act of 
gathering. Now, why do we gather? What are we doing here? The purpose of gathering, number six, on Sundays is to show or reveal what we are to ourselves and to the world to put our flag in the ground as to who our king is and where our eternity is and who is the sovereign to whom we are devoted and the one for whom we live to show who we are, to learn what we are, to become more like who we are supernaturally redeemed to be, to rejoice and to give praise to God for each other, for our reconciliation, for the love that we know and can give, and through it all to witness to the glory of Jesus Christ, to reveal Ephesians 3.10, the multifaceted wisdom of God to the powers and principalities in the world. And just a little hint there that there is nothing on this earth that is more opposed by the devil than a living local church. Why is that? Because a living local church displays eternity before the eyes of the world. So, what is the devil's tactic? To disunite, to cause a church to take its eye off the Word of God, and so many other things. Now, what is a church gathering and what purpose does it serve? Well, let me just run over that again. It's where, as Christians, we go public to declare our highest allegiance. It is a public face to where we stand. It is where we bow before our King. And the weekly gathering of a local church is an expression of Jesus' greater heavenly gathering or the universal church. It is an embassy, if you like, as someone has written of Christ's kingdom and the temporary geography of that kingdom. Now, churches are not about buildings. They're about people, yes. But the people have to meet somewhere. Why on earth we do it in rows? We don't, that's one thing I said last week that was right. We need somewhere to meet. So buildings are helpful. And that building up the road will be used for the gospel, we pray. But it will also be the place where this church meets on a Sunday in obedience to God's command. It shows us and the world who we are, God's people, Christ's body, the Spirit's temple, the shepherd's flock, the vine's branches, the citizens of kingdom. That's why we meet. And to that end, what do we do? Where are we? Number seven. And this, as we'll see in the remainder of our series, is what the Bible says we are to do. And we'll understand 
the reasons why. To that end, in other words, to, to fulfill our purpose as a local church, we gather together to listen to God. Now, let's just pause there. Let's do a straw poll at the door. Why are you here? Why are we here? I would have always said to worship God. And that's right. All of our lives are worship. And we come corporately to do that. But the Bible says it's clearer, it's sharper than that. He says, why are you here? You are here so I can speak to you. Now, you've got to get rid of the preacher in front of you. That's God's means of grace. And we'll come to that in a minute. Proper preaching is from the Bible, which means God is speaking. God is speaking. And Jesus gathers us together that he might speak to us. That we might respond in prayer, speaking to him, confessing our sin, renewing our covenant commitment to God and to one another, that we might sing horizontally to one another and vertically, corporately to God. That's how singing is described. And that we might speak the truth and love long into the night and participate in baptisms, which is welcoming people in to the uh, family of God. And in our tradition, believers and their children and participating in the most intimate gathering in a gathering, which is gathering around the Lord's table, the table of the King. Now, that's what we do when we're here. And for the rest of our time together tonight, point number two, we gather together as a church on Sundays to listen to God speaking. Now, have a wee breather. Hopefully, page one has sorted out some of the clutter. It's marvelous, marvelous what a church is. Let me reiterate, and I know this was felt painfully by some people last week, that we are nowhere near what a church can be. But that is no reason to walk away. It is a reason to walk in on a Sunday and to help make the church what it can be. One of the struggles that people have in a church and ministers are the worst is they, they will not let people love them or care for them or serve them or encourage them. And if they will not let people do that, they will not let people rebuke them. And that's got to flow between us all. So if you feel you do not belong, let me say to you, you do belong. And you and the people around you are sinners. Saved by grace. Now, gathering together as a church on Sundays to listen to God speaking. That is not something new. God has always gathered his people to speak to them. So turn to Genesis 19. Um, Exodus, sorry, 19. Verse 
It's such a fundamental passage at a fundamental point in salvation history. God has led his people out of slavery in Egypt. And he calls them to Mount Sinai. So let me read it, Exodus 19, uh, verse uh, 1 Uh, On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession amongst all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, the people of God at that point in salvation history are now defined as those whom the angel of death has passed over because of the blood of the sacrificed lamb appointed to Christ. And God gathered them under the blood of the lamb to speak to them, to speak to them of his covenant to call them to repentance and to renew their commitment. You see, the foundational principles are in place even at the time of the Exodus. God's purpose is to save a people, corporate. God saves his people through the blood of the Lamb. God covenants with them. He gathers them to speak to them. He calls them to repentance and they renew their commitment. And as they gather in person under the Word of God, they are changed. You see how this is a prototype of a local church. For who are we? We are a group of people gathered together by God, sitting under the Word of God, being changed. Now, Nehemiah 8 will not go there. The same thing happens after the exile. They are gathered, and Ezra reads the law, and the people repent. Acts chapter 2, again, will not go there. Just You might follow these references up later. The church is born as the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, and the connection between the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is the preaching of the Word. The Spirit and the Word creating the church. And the assembly of God's people at Pentecost is the Spirit and the Word. And uh, oh, if we were to achieve the right biblical balance of these two things the Spirit and the Word. The Spirit and the Word. And the description of the church at the end of uh, Acts chapter 2. 42 to 47 begins, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and they gathered together every day. You see, the, the birth of the church, the people gather devoted to the apostles' teaching 
and to the fellowship. Now, let's turn, uh, and if you turn this passage up to our second one, 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 4, 8. Now, these are the last words of the Apostle Paul. And the, the church in Ephesus, of which Timothy was the pastor or one of the pastors, think of the three, the letter to the Ephesians, number one, one Timothy, which is the first letter to Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus, that's letter number two, and two Timothy, Paul's last letter to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. If the message of Ephesians is, is, is in a sense, the left-hand side of your service sheet, how glorious is the local church? The message of 1 Timothy is how to organize yourself in a local church. And the message of 2 Timothy climaxes in the proclamation of the word in the gathered assembly of God. That's what he leaves us with. So verse 14, Paul exhorts Timothy about what he knows from his childhood. It's a bit a bit of a message there, don't abandon your heritage when things get hard. There is no silver bullet. Then remember what Scripture is, verse 16, it's all breathed out by God. And then these most solemn words, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the king and the head of the church, universal and every living local church, who is to judge you, judge the living and the dead. And this is not a charge simply to a Christian minister. It is a charge to every local church to make what comes next central in its gatherings. Preach the word. Preach the word is not down to an individual. Preach the word is down to a church. Because you've got to listen. Preacher alike. Preach the word. In season and out of season. When it's responded to and when it's not. And that whole long list of things the word of God does. It reproves, rebukes, exhorts, comforts, shepherds. Uh, and why is this charge for the time is coming, for the time is coming, and, and surely we're right in a season in history at one of these times when people will not endure sound gospel teaching, the simple gospel, the Word of God, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will wander off into myths. And then these marvelous words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse uh, 5, as for you, always be sober-minded. A better translation is the NIV, keep your head. Or in Scots, keep your heed. Just like Daniel in the Old Testament, savvy. Don't be rocked by the culture. Don't change the gospel because you're living at the start of the 21st century where the zeitgeist or spirit of the age breathes different air. That's foolish. And then the words, I am being poured out like a drink offering. I am done. Timothy is now down to you, the next generation who quake in their shoes as the baton is passed.
Now, it's crystal clear from Scripture that God has always gathered his people to speak to them. It's crystal clear from Scripture that central to the gatherings of a local church is the preaching of God's Word. Now, why is preaching central to our Sunday gatherings? And the logic I've tried to spell out there, and we don't have time to turn to the Bible passages, but I'm happy to take you to them in time. Jesus leads the church. That's not contested. Jesus leads his church through his word, the Bible. The Bible is the supreme rule of faith and life. It is God's word. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. It is everything we need for life and godliness. Jesus leads the church by speaking, speaking his word and preaching, proclamation. So a person preaching God's word when the people of God are gathered. And the purpose of that is not that you listen to one person, is that we all are under the word of God. It's declaratory. And heaven help the preacher and heaven help the congregation if you preach from anything other than the word of God. For then it's not declaratory, it's confusion. Preach into the culture, preach apologetically in the face of the culture, but never preach the culture. Transform the culture through preaching. And we may find ourselves in a generation where faithfulness to the Word of God and raising up a whole new generation of preachers is our calling before God comes with His power and revives His church. God wants fidelity and faithfulness in order to bring fruitfulness. Preaching the word is the appointed means of Jesus speaking to the whole church. And I've written there that preaching is dialogue. I have a colleague, or I did have a colleague in London called Christopher Ash. He writes the most amazing books. Like, I've used one of his books to help with this series. And uh, he writes another book that preaching is silent dialogue. So what's the silent dialogue? Surely it's me speaking. It's not. My job is to preach God's word. And, and we're in a slightly unusual series here, but our norm is, a norm means 95% of the time, is to preach through Bible books. Why is that? It's a dead simple thing because that's how God inspired it. So you just kind of work with a grain. You cut with a grain. And as you preach, we are all, all of us, every single one of us, under the declared word of God. And what happens? If the word is preached, then God speaks. And there is unity. And there is transformation. And there is shepherd care. And there is rebuke. And there is encouragement. And there is profound kindness from Jesus. And all the time as the word of God is preached and we drift off to sleep and come back again, our hearts and minds, not least as we sing after the word of God is preached, are transported from here to the universal church, to our brothers and sisters around the world as we think of that family in the Middle East. They are part of this family, but they are part of that family and we are connected with them. We can pray for them and God will answer these prayers 
Preaching is dialogue, and how do you know that? Because you speak to people afterwards, and they say, oh, God spoke to me, God spoke to me. And it's not, it's not ever exactly what you think God said or what you think you said. I mean, it is all within the orbit of that, but God takes the Word of God, and He lays that word, that line from that song on your heart because your heart needs that word. How can he do that when there's one proclamation in an assembly because he is God and his spirit, one spirit takes that sword that is the word and yields it individually and yet all the time as he yields that sword individually, he gathers it all up corporately so there is one coherent, united, corporate response to the word of God which is to go out into the week reminded that we are a gathered people of God, united, bonded. So if this week brings you trouble, then someone will be at your back. Someone will be at your side. If you're not here, someone, I hope and pray, will ask if you're okay. Now, doubts about preaching. Well, doubts about preaching in the culture, what would they be? Well, I don't want to finish with this, really. Preaching is presumptuous. It's naive. Presumptuous because it displays an unwarranted arrogance. Naive because it proclaims absolute truth. As a method, it isn't effective. It lacks immediacy, reciprocity, dialogue, visuals. I'm not talking about the use of visuals when you are preaching. That's just good common sense often. I'm talking about the removal of the declared Word of God. Doubts expressed in the church... But it's not working. Uh, David Jackman, one of my colleagues in London, uh, did a lecture on this, and he told a story of a young preacher who went to Spurgeon, bemoaning the comparative ineffective of his ministry. Spurgeon asked him, do you really expect God to work every time you preach? And the young man replied, well, no. Well, that's why nothing happens. I was talking earlier about the humility and insecurity of the next generation. Put that onto a local church, corporate scale. Scots like to lose well. Sometimes we need to pull up our socks and remember what the church is and to expect fruit Pray for it. The biggest problem you face in the life of a church is that preaching gets squeezed out in the busyness of many other uh, priorities. And uh, I thank God for all the preachers here, not least my two closest colleagues, that we can share it out. 
because you are not here to listen to Roger or to Jay or to me. That's the modern-day equivalent of Paul or Apollos or Cephas or whatever. You are here to listen to Jesus. And that's why all the accusations about preaching, what we are doing now, is utterly presumptuous. Unless you stumble upon the fact that it's Jesus speaking from his word. The king. The king. Now, belonging and being here matters. I want to appeal to those of you who have not come back after lockdown. Come back. I want to appeal to those of you watching online who are not going to your local church because you are joining here. Go back to your local church or find a local church where the Word of God is preached. We love having you online, but your pastor would love seeing you on a Sunday. No, no. Jesus would love seeing you on a Sunday. And be here when you can. And you all belong. We all belong. And to that person, as we close, who thinks they do not belong, I fully understand. We've all been there. You do belong. And I pray that you will soon know that. Let's pray. Lord, when we take on the subject of what a living church is, we run the risk of looking in the mirror and finding it not to be like that. And where that is true, we repent of it and ask that you would help us put it right. Or more particularly, let you put it right. Where it is true, we rejoice in it. And pray that as a church here and living churches across this nation, indeed across the West and across the world, would grasp what it is and what it means to be part of a living local church and rejoice in it and celebrate it and to keep doing what you tell us to do and to wait expectantly for what you and you alone can only do which is to revive and to bring fruit and to convert and to rest people from darkness into light. It is a tough time for the church in this part of the world. But that is nothing new. Thank you, Lord Jesus, King and Head of this church, as we renew our commitment to you. Our loyalty to you as our King and our obedience to your word. For Jesus' sake, amen.